Hey, hey, Water Coolians, welcome back to the first official episode of Season 5 of Water Cooler Talk. To celebrate, we're going back in time some 300 years to religious upheaval, a satanic panic, and witches. And then we're heading back to the present to talk about pretty much those same things. Kind of funny. Kind of not. Joining me on that journey is new friend and guest host Katya Lovejoy. Katya brings with her years of experience using a holistic, dynamic, and effective approach to talk about trauma, whether it be individual trauma, collective trauma, or in the case of pardons for women killed 300 years ago, ancestral trauma. In this episode, Katya and I also build a conversation around the end of Britney Spears' conservatorship in November of 2021, and how for the past 4,000 years, 4,000 years that is, and most likely beyond that, men have discounted the medical state of women as them merely being too hysterical or too emotional to have their own voice. <laughs> it is good to be back. Welcome to season five. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 76 titled, Do You Have Space? with Katya Lovejoy. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right, well, Katya, are you ready to jump into our first news story of this episode? I'm ready. This is from the Guardian UK News Scotland, written by Caroline Davies, December 19th, 2021. Women executed 300 years ago as witches in Scotland set to receive pardons. From allegations of cursing the king's ships to shape-shifting into animals or dancing with the devil. A satanic panic that lasted throughout the 16th to 18th century in Scotland meant that an estimated 3,837 people, 84% of whom were women, were tried and convicted as being witches, with two-thirds of those convicted witches, about 2,500 people, being executed and burned. Scotland's relentless pursuit of witches between 1563 when the Scottish Witchcraft Act made a capital offense to practice witchcraft or really even consult with the witch, and 1735-36 where it was finally repealed, resulted in five great Scottish witch hunts and a series of nationwide trials. Now, almost three centuries after the Witchcraft Act of 1735-36 was passed, which made it a crime for a person to claim that any human being had magical powers or practiced witchcraft, campaigners are on a course to win pardons and official apologies for the accused and convicted. Claire Mitchell QC, who leads the Witches of Scotland campaign, said it was seeking pardons, apologies, and a national monument to the mainly female victims of the witch hunt. She states, per capita during the period between the 16th and 18th century, we, Scotland that is, executed five times as many people as elsewhere in Europe, the vast majority of them women. To put that into perspective, in Salem, 300 people were accused and 19 people were executed. We absolutely excelled at finding women to burn in Scotland. The earliest witch hunts were sanctioned by James IV of Scotland, later James I of England and Ireland, who may best be remembered as sponsoring the King James Version of the Bible, who believed witches plotted against his Danish bride Anne of Denmark by summoning up storms to try and sink the ships Anne had used to sail from Denmark to Scotland for their official marriage. Other well-known cases include Lilius Aedy from Toryburn Fief, who was accused of casting a spell to cause a neighbor's hangover, while Isabel Young, executed at Edinburgh Castle in 1629, was said by a stable boy to have shapeshifted into an owl and accused of having a coven. The Witches of Scotland website notes that signs associated with witchcraft, broomsticks, cauldrons, black cats, pointed hats, were also associated with alewives, the name for women who brewed weak beer to combat poor water quality. The broomstick sign was to let people know beer was on sale, the cauldron to brew it, the cat to keep the mice down, and the hat to distinguish them at market. But before we move on, I just want to add a slight addition to that. It's not definitive that the alewives are the archetype of what we associate modern witches to be. Some historians believe that the image of the modern witch was created around the 18th century through children's chapbooks, a cheap type of street literature for the lower class. But since alewives, who were usually poor, single, and or widowed women, often competed with men in the trade, they would be accused of witchcraft and thus would be unable to afford the social and economic resources to fight the quote-unquote witch accusations against them. But back to the article and Claire Mitchell QC closes her thoughts by stating, Those executed weren't guilty, so 
they should be acquitted. So Katya, just on the basic level of, you know, just what is your take on the idea of the witch, quote unquote, the witch? And has popular media, you know, Harry Potter, Bewitch, Scarlet Witch, Charm, Sabrina, and Selena with, you know, Wizards of Waverly Place, changed that perception? Wow. So the history of witches is long and has obviously, from that article, had really widespread impact. So as far as I know, the first popularization of the word witch came in the 14th century with this publication of a book called Malleus Maleficarum, which was basically a guidebook of how to, of what a witch is, how to identify a witch, and how to persecute a witch, which often involved torture. So what they described as how you can identify a witch It was often, and you mentioned, right, this was usually women. There were some men and children who were accused of witchcraft, but usually that was because they were connected to a woman who was accused of witchcraft. So some of the signs written in this book of, you know, how to identify a witch, it's often a woman who was unmarried, who was living alone, a woman who had, who owned property, a woman who, often older women who were past their childbearing years. So these women, you can already tell, are not uh, aligning or assimilating into the structure that of society that people wanted, right? The are kind of like considered the outcasts of society at the time. Exactly. And, you know, women who were sexually expressed, that was a sign of demonic possession. It was powerful women, women who were fully expressed, you know, in their zones of genius, whether that's working with herbs or, as I said, midwifery. Mm -hmm. Yet these were the women who were identified as evil, you know, possessed by the devil. And that was reason enough to imprison them, to torture them, to even kill them. And they would do all kinds of things like um, tie a woman up and drown her. And if she got if she survived, she was a witch. And then she would have to be imprisoned or executed. And if she drowned, she wasn't a witch, but then she's dead, right? So the word witch was used as a a reason to murder women. There's a lot of different numbers of how many women were, and people in general, but as you said, mostly women were executed or accused and executed 50,000 throughout Europe and even the United States in in the Salem witch trials. So that's a lot of women over the course of hundreds of years. And that makes an impact. I think it's really valuable that we do have new narratives about witches in popular culture, like in Harry Potter, Sabrina, everything that you mentioned, because here we're seeing women who are in their power, who are human, who love, who are good people, right? And so that really changes the narrative around what a witch is and what even a woman is. Yeah, that's a very good point as we, you know, change this perception of that word and what it means to be a quote unquote witch. And uh, and I think it goes all the way back to Lilith, Adam's first wife. She was seen as this she demon. You know, she was kicked out of, or she actually didn't want to go back to Eden because she was like, I want to be equals with you, Adam. And Adam was like, no, thanks. And Lilith was like, well, I don't need no man. I'm going to get out of here. And so if you go from a religious perspective, just from that beginning, women were kind of shut out. And it was the story of Adam and Eve and Eve coming from the rib of Adam and being, quote unquote, inferior to Adam. And then Eve causing the downfall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. What do we know more in history from the story of Adam and Eve or Adam and Lilith? We know more about Adam and Eve because that created this this society where men and women had these hierarchs. You had this ability to, as you mentioned earlier, to look at that outcast who may not fit into society. And you're like, well, maybe I kind of want their house. I kind of want their job. I kind of want their capital. And so now you have a legitimate reason that society believes to be legitimate to take that capital from that person, mainly women, because they're seen as inferior. And then you throw in, you know, like we mentioned, kind of 
women spending most of their time as hunter-gatherers being the gatherers and learning more about the earth and learning more about how to use herbs and plants to make quote-unquote potions and medicines. And as I mentioned, being kind of the precursor to what we know as science, but back in the day, they didn't understand the science the same way we do, so they saw it as magic. So now you have all these characteristics of somebody you want to take something from that you can throw against them and say, well, look at her over there. She's practicing magic and, you know, cursing people. And then, you know, a lot of what happened specifically in the 16th century with the Reformation period and the conversation between Protestants and Christianity was that people wanted to find something that they believed in and they wanted to answer the questions of the unknown. When you have this individual who is that unknown and you're in this kind of satanic panic time period when, you know, religion is going crazy and people are trying to use any fears to kind of bring you to their side because, right, I have the one and only answer. That other person, they have no idea what they're talking about. And by, you know, using these characteristics that are just as, you know, we've kind of talked about like healing and helping and trying to make their own way in the world as characteristics of the villain, you can easily see how, you know, the idea of the quote unquote witch grew. From that very first, you know, story of Adam and Lilith and Adam and Eve, you know, I grew up watching Selena Gomez and Wizards of Waverly Place and to see, I think it was a woman and two guys and Selena Gomez was kind of like that main witch, you know, she was the mit, sorry for anybody who hasn't seen the whole show and doesn't want it spoiled, but the very end, I believe she becomes the main witch because you can only have one witch in a family. Technically, this is true. In the world of Wizards of Waverly Place, you're only able to have one individual from a family be a witch or wizard, which ends up being Selena's character. But her older brother in the show, Justin, does remain a wizard as he takes over as headmaster of the magic school. Because she was just the more powerful being. And beforehand, you wouldn't see that. You would see depiction of witches like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, the Wicked Witch of the East. I meant to say Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, the Wicked Witch of the East was the witch who unfortunately was crushed by Dorothy and then had her ruby slippers, or actually silver in the original, stolen. You know, that is like what people think of when they think of witches, when they want to dress up as witches on Halloween. But now we have these characters that people are like, all right, this is an awesome figure that is changing the narrative of once was a villain for ridiculous mm -hmm. reasons. Yeah. So this is not only uh, maintaining a gender hierarchy, but it's uh, about maintaining a religious hierarchy where the church is the only valid and acceptable religion for folks. And this is a tool of colonization. So before the Roman Empire came to dominate all of Europe, there were hundreds of indigenous tribes of Europeans with different languages, with different traditions and rituals. And it's hard to unify people who are so different. And when Constantinople made Christianity the one legal religion of the Roman Empire, that helped to create a unification, right? If everybody was having the same religion, well, that's something that can unify them. So what happens then to folks who are practicing pagan religions? Well, they either have to assimilate, and in many places, pagan spirituality and Christianity did mix together, but anybody who wasn't going to assimilate had to be eliminated for the purpose of the empire. So again, like these women who were and, and in indigenous cultures around the world, not all, but many are ma matriarchal and women hold positions of power. And that just doesn't vibe with the Roman church, the Roman empire, which was a patriarchal structure. So going back to the witches, right? Again, these are powerful women. These are women who are, as you said, doing, you know, that magic, right? Science, but also spiritual practices, you know, working with the energies of the sun and the moon, believing in other forms of spirituality. And that had to go for uh, the empire to thrive. No, that's a, a very good way to look at it. And something I'm always reminded of when, you know, the question comes up a lot of the time that pertains to, 
intelligence throughout history. You know, in the past, people were stupid and weren't as smart. But in reality, people were just as smart as you or I. It's just we had different tools. People were doing exactly what you're doing in your practice. People were doing exactly what I was doing with, you know, the podcast, doing it obviously in different ways. They didn't have, you know, a, a a chance to have remote conversations with people on the other side of the country or record it through these mics to be able to share it with the world. But people were having conversations. People were doing different holistic ways and, you know, different uh, ways of talking with people and, you know, studying the sciences and doing all these different things just in different ways. They weren't stupider. They weren't Neanderthals and living in caves. You know, you see a lot of these same kind of threads of, you know, how religion plays an important factor in society's day-to-day, we're seeing those same threads in, in today's age that we saw, as you mentioned, during the Romans and Christianity and Constantinople and kind of how they specifically speaking to Julius Caesar conquering the Gauls and genociding the Gauls and taking over those cultures and decimating those cultures. We're seeing very similar things throughout the world here, even in the United States, as far as how we, you know, treat outsiders, you know, especially after situations like 9-11, you taking away something that we're, as I mentioned earlier, afraid of that we don't exactly understand that we misunderstand. We had a similar conversation with Michael B.C. Rivera about campfire stories and, you know, how we're more afraid of the enemy unknown than the enemy seen. You know, we're more likely to take on the the tiger in front of our cave rather than, you know, this bright shining light in the night sky that when it's full makes people act a certain way. We'd rather take on what we know than what we don't know. And religion brought that to the forefront in a way we've Mm -hmm. never really seen before. You're right. It is happening today. And the intersection of religion and the medical world, we see that with, you know, the way that politicians are policing women's bodies in terms of abortion rights and things of that nature, access to birth control that is often couched in a religious context, right? Using ideas, right, from Christianity. Now, I also want to back up and say, like, Christianity at its core is beautiful. You know, I know many wonderful Christians. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in compassion. But the political aspect of the church has created a lot of pain across the entire world, across many cultures, and has been a force of domination and oppression. And oppression causes trauma. And I think it's very important to highlight what you said that religion is, I mean, I'm not a religious person, you know, that's not something I have grown accustomed to. But religion is a very, very beautiful and important thing in our world. It's just when people use it for negative reasons, when people pick and choose what works in their idea of what the world should look like. It's important that we always come back to the sense of many of the ideas throughout history are positively good. It's just when you have a large swath of people believing in something positively good, there's going to be people that bring a negative to that, that bring these ideas that they say, I can use this positive good for my own personal gain or for the personal gain of my family, my friends, my countrymen. And and, and those people that do that, they think what they're doing is good. Sometimes it does take the ages of history to realize that what they're doing is not good. You know, we look at something like the Crusades. The people who were doing the Crusades during that time thought they were doing the right thing. But now we can kind of look back at history and say, well, you're trying to go into a land that wasn't yours, trying to take that land that wasn't yours and killed and pillaged along the way while you were there because you thought that was the right thing to do. And what you said about just all these factors cause so much trauma that we don't necessarily realize cause traumas, in this case, 300 years later. And to that, you know, what's the importance in beginning to try and heal traumatic wrongs of the past. Yeah, well, the way we relate to history, the stories that we tell matter. And I want to back up a little and just explain that we can think about trauma as happening in three different levels. There's individual trauma, which is what happens to a person in their lifetime. There's collective trauma, which is trauma that happens to groups of people. So uh, groups of people who are historically oppressed. Women are the largest historically oppressed group of people. And of course, there's other groups of people that have been deeply historically oppressed and traumatized. Black people, Jewish people, LGBT folks. In all of these categories, women exist, right? So, Mm -hmm. and we're talking about women today. But any 
person that identifies with one of these groups is connected to the collective trauma. We do have something called the collective unconscious. You know, another thing about trauma is that it doesn't live in the conscious mind. Trauma exists in the subconscious mind and in the body. So I'm a modern woman. I can think that, yeah, my worth is equal to that of a man. I deserve my voice to be heard. My ideas are just as important as a man's. I deserve to have the same financial freedom as men. But if underneath that, I'm still connected to old trauma, collective trauma of women who were considered worth less than men, you know, the subconscious always wins. So in groups, we're, you know, we're connected to that collective trauma. And then we have ancestral trauma, which is the trauma that is passed down through a lineage that studies have shown the, the field of epigenetics shows us that we can actually inherit trauma responses through our DNA. And there's a lot of studies about this. Their studies have shown that uh, war veterans with PTSD, their children also exhibit trauma responses. Jewish people who survived the Holocaust, their children and grandchildren exhibit trauma responses. And there's a really interesting study that they did with rats where they pumped the scent of cherry blossom into the rat cage and at the same time electrocuted the rats. The study, released in 2013 by neuroscientists at Emory University, was titled Parental Olfactor Experience Influences Behavior and Neural Structure in Subsequent Generations. So they did that over and over again so that the rats, you know, developed a trauma response to the scent of cherry blossom because they just connected that with the electric shock. Mm -hmm. The grandchildren of those rats... When they smelled cherry blossom, they exhibited a trauma response, even though they had never been electrocuted in their lifetime. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we can inherit fear responses. So we have these different levels. And there's a great book that talks about this. It's called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. And he goes into a lot of the science, uh, the different studies of what is inherited but he also talks about his experience with his clients. He's a psychologist. And I want to tell a story from his book that really speaks to this point, why it's important to rewrite these stories. So I, it's been a long time since I read this book, so I, I may get the details wrong, but I, the general story is this young man who's 19 years old came to see Mark as a patient because when he was 18, he started having this these symptoms where he would wake up at three o'clock in the morning, freezing, could not get warm and couldn't go back to sleep because he was just so cold. And this just happened over and over and over again. And so he goes to Mark for treatment. Now, Mark is all about inherited trauma and the, the stories of a family. So he's taking a family history, you know, asking about what has happened, the different members of the family. The young man says, you know, actually, I just learned that I had an uncle that died before I was born. I never met him and I never heard of him because nobody in the family spoke of him because he died a traumatic death. And then because people have a hard time dealing with grief, they just didn't talk about him. Well, turns out his uncle died at the age of 18 in the middle of the night from hypothermia. He was in a blizzard, right? And so his story was disowned from the family. And now his nephew, his that man's trauma is living through the body of his nephew. And as soon as that story was reclaimed, the truth was spoken, you know, that uncle was back in the family fold, he was acknowledged, the symptoms of that young man went away. Now, I don't get the science of that. But it's a true story. It's fascinating, right? So it's the stories that we that we share when we illuminate truth, it makes a difference and it can can change how we show up in the world. So these women in Scotland who are being pardoned, that is important. That brings the truth forward. That completes the story. And so I think it it does affect all women, especially their descendants. I think that's the perfect way to wrap up this story on the the accused and convicted and hopefully time will heal this wound and you know heal the ancestors of these, you know, women and you know some men and children as well. But I think that's a perfect segue into kind of introducing you and who the heck you are. I would like to welcome to the show a new friend, Katya Lovejoy. Katya, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So you kind of just briefly touched or more so touched upon that idea of ancestral trauma and generational transmission of pain. 
how is that something that one can identify? You know, you mentioned that story you just shared, and how should one move forward once it's identified? Mm, yeah, knowing the stories of your family, talking to your elders is important, hearing what they went through. But ultimately, all of this trauma, whether it's ancestral or collective, it's going to show up in your body. So our body is the place that we start to heal trauma, wherever it comes from. You know, how do we start doing that? We want to work with a professional. We can't heal trauma in isolation. We can't heal it through just reading books. It's an experiential process. And part of that process is, you know, calming the system down. Trauma is not so much the event as it is the response in the body to the event. So the body goes into, you know, a dysregulated state in the nervous system. You can get stuck in fight or flight or in freeze. And, you know, there's a host of things that might point to that, like hypervigilance, insomnia, anxiety, even depression. These can all be rooted in trauma. And so working with somebody who has that understanding is really important. This is a newer thing that we're talking about trauma on a collective level. What I mean by that is that um, in society, we're having these conversations. Our parents and grandparents did not know about trauma and certainly did not speak about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a master's in social work that I got seven years ago. We didn't talk about trauma. I didn't learn about how to support people working through trauma or what trauma, how trauma presents in the body or the psyche. Interesting. Yeah. I did five years of postgraduate study focusing on trauma-focused hypnotherapy that I'm so grateful for because that really helped me understand, as I said, trauma lives in the subconscious, trauma lives in the body. But it's wild to me that master's level training for therapists isn't including an in-depth conversation about trauma. Now, things are changing. Even just this conversation is an example of how, you know, this is becoming more mainstream knowledge and people really resonate with this. People really, when once they learn about trauma, it's like a sense of validation. Like, oh, wow, my experience, now it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's taken so long to get this point where we're talking about? Like, literally the other day, I saw this video of a World War One veteran literally shaking from PTSD after he saw his helmet, just, just shaking like, like you would never seen. It's a crazy video. And so trauma has always happened throughout human existence. Why has it taken up to this point to really start having these types of discussions about it. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. You know, it might be... I mean, our, at least in your yeah, opinion. Then. I mean, it might be our understanding, like the development of the field of science and somatics and psychology and just having a greater understanding of how events impact people. Another thing is, is that when you're in survival mode, you don't have the luxury of thinking about or working on your trauma. Trauma healing is very challenging to do when you're still in a situation that feels traumatic. And, you know, we're using that word trauma, but we can also use the, the phrase chronic stress. You know, trauma is anything that puts us into protection mode, anything that makes it unsafe for us to be fully expressed and that results in trauma responses like fight, flight, freeze. So going back to this idea of, of women and the collective trauma, Right? If trauma is where it's unsafe to be fully expressed, well, we go back to that story about the witches. Yeah, these women who are fully expressed in their sexuality or in their, you know, creativity or in their power, you know, that wasn't safe anymore. Or, you know, if people are in poverty and they're just trying to get enough food on the table for family, right? There's no spaciousness to start to think about or feel into the trauma. We're blessed, at least. You know, you and I were on the computer. We have enough privilege that we can have a computer with a microphone. And, mm -hmm. you know, the people who are listening to this, they're listening to a podcast. Like we're not like scrambling for survival. I do think that our current culture is very overwhelming and rather traumatic. You know, we're not uh, designed evolutionarily to process the amount of information that comes at us every day. You know, another definition of trauma is that it's anything that's too much, too fast, too soon. So we're not physiologically, neurologically, biologically designed to process the amount of information or to even know 
about this many people and all of their thoughts. It's constant sensory input. And that's going to, you know, make us want to kind of shut down. And this is why we often do numb out (laughs) in different ways. Yeah, I believe as far as the subconscious, you're getting like, uh, there's this really good book. It has like a lime green cover. I cannot remember the name of it right now. The book is How Your Subconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior by Leonard Miladinov. But it talked about how we're getting like these billions of points of data, like literally every second, and you just can't can't take that in and transfer it into conscious thought. So your subconscious, as you talked about earlier, is working and taking this all in, even in this conversation, you know, now that I'm looking around, I see the lights and the smell and the way I'm speaking, the what I'm wearing, the clothes on my you know, body, like all these things you don't really think about, but they are happening. I love what you just said. That's something that uh, it's, it's a skill called orienting that we can use when people do have trauma responses like a sense of hypervigilance where, you know, if something really intense happens to you, you tend to internalize that chaos. So if I'm walking around the world with an internal sense of chaos, I'm also going to project that on the external world and feel like the world is unsafe based on what happened to me. But also when we go back to that, those genetic studies, I may have inherited certain fear responses. But when we do what you just did, Mm -hmm. which was connect to all of your senses, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling with my hands, like the texture? What am I smelling? That really anchors us into the present moment where 99% of the time we're safe. And if we're not, then it, it helps us connect to the fact, oh, hey, I smell fire. I need to go, right? And so just connecting to the present moment through your senses is a way of starting to work with or work through those trauma responses and, and ground yourself. And I also thought what you said about just the ability of time. And this is something I think about a lot, you know, our ancestors spent so much time, say, farming or hunting or having to take care of their homestead that I can just go to the grocery store and get food that would have taken my ancestors months to grow or a full day of hunting to track down, you know, say a deer, for example. And so I think a lot about that and how it gives us so much time and this ability to really understand who we are as humans that we've never really had the opportunity before. Going back once again to that Michael B.C. Rivera conversation and, you know, we talked about wizards in that and how we around the campfire, once we, you know, started building agriculture and didn't have to do all this hunting and gathering that we started telling stories and we had more time to really think about what humans are. And I think The more time we have, the more time we'll think about who the heck we are. But I also don't know if that's a good thing. I don't know if there's a, there's this certain, you know, ledge that once we cross, there's no coming back from. I mean, I think that our modern culture, while it's very convenient, it does contribute to some mental illness or I don't even love that term, but like, you know, feelings of dissatisfaction or depression and isolation. Gosh, I wish I could remember this study. I read it years and years ago. A psychologist, her hypothesis was that when we use our hands to create something that contributes to our survival, our well-being, so whether that's using our hands to garden, to farm, or to knit, or to build, that it releases feel-good chemicals in the brain. And since we're not doing that so much anymore, we're missing out on that because we're very much in this spell of, you know, wealth means, making it means living on my own in my own little house and, you know, having all my own stuff. We're not connected to people in a way that's really nourishing. Yeah, we're connected through the internet to billions of people, but on more of a superficial level. Mm-hmm. And again, we heal in community. So to be alone, yeah, it's just not that helpful. And, and like you said, you know, maybe it's not so good that we have so much time and kind of go down into a downward spiral. At the same time, there's always been monks, you know, there's always been, you know, uh, nuns and priests and stuff who, who have, really contemplated philosophers who really 
spend that time contemplating the human existence. I think it's good to have a balance. Mm -hmm. And I even, you know, when you say that, I think about how like we had these smaller communities and say you had one doctor in that community and that doctor felt valued in that community. And now we have a community of hundreds of doctors and there's both pros and cons to those things. And that's sometimes even back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, with religion, there's these good things and there's these things that aren't as good. And you kind of have to really realize your position within those things and how you fit into the betterment of humanity. Because that's that's my goal is just, you know, every day making it better, you know, start today making it better and focusing on how we as humans who have these opportunities, who can have these conversations, the fact that we can set aside time in our day to have a conversation where we don't need to survive is very important. That's quite the privilege to have that there are a lot of people in this world don't have. So kind of using that privilege to make the world a better place and to, you know, not push outcasts and not create this idea of the witch because you don't like someone who you don't understand. It's very important that we work towards that betterment of understanding and really as the collective working in this community to help each other with these things that impact us and traumas and the such. Yeah. And art has always been important to humans. You know what we're doing here, we're creating something And that's always been very valuable. Creativity is a natural part of humanity. And to be fully expressed in whatever way that is for you is a fundamental need. So when we think about like, what am I doing in my life? Like, how can I be the best me and make an impact, positive impact on the world? One way to think about it is how can I be more fully expressed and how can I encourage and support others in their full expression? And I appreciate you doing that through this podcast. I'm just out here trying. Uh, Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. Give them back. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Katya, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Rainforest Foundation. Do you mind explaining a bit about the work they do in Latin America in regards to a healthy rainforest, indigenous people's rights, climate action, sustainable development, and why that type of work is important in our modern day? I think it's the most important because if we do not have a healthy planet, we don't get to be here. And I think I read recently that we have about 11 years to reverse climate collapse. For me, any charity that I give to is usually connected to clean water or um, climate advocacy. You know, the rainforest is a huge source of oxygen for the planet. It has so much biodiversity. And what's cool about this organization is that it works with the indigenous people to preserve the environment. Indigenous people have been caretaking nature forever. (laughs) We need to look to them to learn how to care for this planet so that we can all continue to thrive here. So that's why I chose that. It just feels like the most important thing. Environmental sustainability is the the bedrock of all other important things that we want to do in the world. Well, I appreciate you uh, bringing them on the show and allowing me to share them to my greater audience. Thank you so much. That's amazing that you give donations out to all of these wonderful charities. (laughs) All right, Katja, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the day? I'm ready. This is from the Smithsonian Magazine History, written by Louise Godbold, July 1st, 2021. Britney Spears in the age-old history of men policing women's trauma. So, I mean, as both me and Katya know, this is a very well-written and informative article by Louise Godbold. And as I often mention, I try to, you know, summarize the article the best I can in the shortest possible time frame. You want me to read through the article for 20 minutes. So, I highly recommend just following the link in the description of this episode to read the full article to contextualize some of the other important points made that Katya and I may or may not discuss in our conversation. Just that option is there if you want it. But to the article, during the last two centuries, when male doctors observed female patients experiencing some of the symptoms that we now understand are caused by trauma, they diagnosed the condition as hysteria. 
And since hysteria was seen as a disease of the uterus, uterus is literally hysteria in Greek, the remedy was as drastic as it was brutal, surgically removing the uterus, aka a hysterectomy. Nowadays, we have a clear understanding of how trauma manifests in behavior, but what was made clear throughout pop star Britney Spears' testimony during her June 2021 Conservancy hearings was that modern-day America still too often pathologizes trauma and deprives trauma survivors of their bodily autonomy and basic human rights. Spears has been under a court-ordered conservatorship since 2008 when her father was given control of her estate and many other aspects of her personal life which included her reproductive rights, and according to her testimony, even such particulars as the decor of her kitchen. Her father refused her request to restain the kitchen cabinets, saying it was far too expensive. And just a quick update as I'm going through this article, Spears' conservatorship was terminated on November 12th, 2021. So the Free Britney movement, she is free. The conservatorship was a result of a very public unraveling that had begun the year prior in 27, in 27, in 2007, which included Britney shaving her head and smacking a reporter's car with an umbrella. She was also involved in an alleged standoff with police, refusing to surrender her sons in 2008. Yet the conservatorship was unusual because they're usually only granted in cases of severe cognitive impairment or development disability. Leslie Salesman, a clinical professor of law at the Cordozo School of Law, states that a conservatorship is not for an individual who is young, who is working, who is very successful in their field, because that suggests a level of capability that wouldn't meet the standard for legal incapacity. To that point, during her conservatorship, as many supporters point out, Spears was able to complete a successful four-year residency titled Peace of Me that consisted of close to 146 performances. Spears did not undergo an unwanted hysterectomy, which would have befuddled male doctors of the past. It was shocking to learn her conservatives forced her to have her uterus occupied by an IUD rather than the baby she wanted. And by dint of conservatorship, her father was able to exert the same total control over his daughter from her choice in marriage to her productive rights that women experienced in the most restrictive days of the paternalistic past. The male tendency to pathologize and police women's bodies and emotions, especially the deep emotions that fall trauma, dates at least back to Plato and his concept of the quote-unquote wandering uterus, which he explained was an affliction that he believed responsible for the symptoms we would now recognize in modern day as a panic attack. Hysteria has been applied to women's emotional distress for at least 4,000 years and was only finally dropped by the American Psychiatric Association in 1952. The term, and its supposed origins in the womb, was the explanation for all manner of emotions that were incomprehensible and inconvenient to men. We are only able to guess at the trauma that might have brought Britney Spears to the place where her extremes of behavior qualified her for conservatorship. From the memoir, Through the Storm, a real story of fame and family in a tabloid world written by her mother, Lynn Spears, we do know Britney has been using alcohol since the age of 13 and that her father is an alcoholic. The memoir also claims Britney was drugged and isolated by her former manager, Sam Lutfi, a claim Lutfi disputes, and it is not unusual for trauma survivors to turn to substances to relieve their pain. Another example, after a breakdown involving substance abuse in 2013, another former child actress, Amanda Bynes, was put under the conservatorship of her mother. In 2020, Bynes got engaged to a man she met in rehab, but could not get married without the approval of her mother. Now, plenty of male celebrities openly struggle with addiction and dysregulated behavior. Kanye West, Robert Downey Jr., Johnny Depp, Tiger Woods, and Macaulay Culkin, to just name a few, but have never been stripped of their autonomy, kept from marriage, or made to submit to involuntary contraception. When male lawyers discuss her case in the press, they say that she hurts her case by being too emotional, and she should find witnesses who can attest to the absence of erratic behavior. But what may seem erratic to them is perfectly understandable to those of us who understand trauma. The social media campaign, hashtag Free Britney, was and is not just about the fate of one woman living out her trauma very publicly, it is also a cry that echoes backwards in time for 4,000 years, and one that resonates with every woman who has ever been forced to fit herself into a male view of acceptable emotions and behavior, lest she be locked up and stripped of her rights. So like I said, this conservatorship 
ended November 12th, 2021. This Free Britney movement has had success. But just to this idea of this misdiagnosis of women in the past and present, how do you feel like that's impacted their voice? Well, Britney is a perfect example, sadly, of this. I mean, she's a powerful woman who was probably inconvenient to men. And she was diagnosed as being mentally ill with substance abuse issues. And it does sound like she did have some some stuff with substance abuse. And that was reason enough to keep her basically in a prison of her own home with her father as the prison guard. This has happened so many times over the course of history where women are essentially silenced because men say that they are uh, irrational mm-hmm. or, you know, even in the case of the witch that, uh, you know, are possessed by the devil rather than just exhibiting very natural symptoms of trauma. With this idea of hysteria, and as you mentioned, the root of that word means uterus, the idea that women are defective simply for their womanhood, that just having a uterus causes behavior that's unacceptable, that is worthy of being locked away in a psychiatric institution or whatever it may be. What message does that give to women? It gives the, the message that there's something wrong with me. When we have that belief that there's something wrong with me, and by the way, I've worked with hundreds of people doing trauma-focused hypnotherapy, and almost every single woman that I have worked with has that belief that there's something wrong with me, or I'm worth less. Well, that is going to create shame. Shame makes us go silent. Shame makes us want to hide because it's not safe to be seen. Because if there's something wrong with us and we're defective, there's something bad could happen. And so shame exists in silence. And so of course, our voices are going to be affected by this feeling of shame. You know, one thing that's really interesting about this conversation is the idea of what is typical of women, right? And I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by a man named Resma Menachem. He's a wonderful scholar and author of trauma, in particular racial trauma. But he says, trauma decontextualized in a person looks like personality. And trauma decontextualized in a group of people looks like culture. So some of the things that we think are just who we are is actually a trauma response. So are women actually inherently organically meek? Are women really more soft-spoken? Are women really less powerful? Are women really like emotionally erratic? Or are these trauma responses that have evolved over hundreds, if not thousands of years of the trauma of oppression? It's a really interesting thing to Mm -hmm. think about. Some of the conversations I've had with female friends and, you know, how they talk with significant others, you know, other male friends, you know, doctors specifically, is they feel like they always have to reel it in. And they can't go and completely be open and honest about their emotions. Because as you know, this article kind of labels, they'll be labeled as hysterical, you know, you know, this trust gap, trying to be honest, but not trying to sound like you're being hysterical, and you're being this quote, unquote, emotional woman, seeing it from the outside in and trying to get a better understanding of it to see how I can be of service to the women in my life is such an interesting and unfortunate circumstance to trying to be a human in society and trying to be specifically a woman in society. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you as a man and other men are really taking this initiative to amplify women's voices, to amplify these stories of women and to to better understand what it has been like for women and other marginalized groups. You know, it's so important that uh, our stories are believed and that we have advocates for our well-being and for uplifting our voice. And I'm so kind of glad we had these two stories because they work so cohesively together. You know, if you take the situation of Britney Spears and her father and, you know, her conservators back to the time of the 16th century, the 17th, the 18th century of the previous story in Scotland, I could 
very much see her being treated as the quote unquote witch, being tortured and burned to the death as witches are because her father saw an opportunity to control her capital, to control her wealth. You know, the fact that she couldn't even get her, you know, cabinet stained because he thought it was too expensive. The fact that she wasn't allowed to have children because that's somebody who could potentially be taking away that capital from him and, you know, the people involved in controlling her. It's such an interesting, as I mentioned a a while ago, we're seeing these same threads of the past show up again in the present. Being able to look at something like, for most Americans, understanding the Salem witch trials and being like, oh, that's never going to happen again, or, you know, the revolution or any of those things and saying, that's never going to happen again. That was the past. Well, we're seeing the building blocks of those- Well, actually, there's still- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. But no, as like to your saying, we're seeing the building blocks. Those things are still happening in, in today's day and age. But if we put on these rose tinted glasses and say, it's the past, I'm moving forward. I have an iPhone. I have an Android. I have the computer. I have Netflix. I have HBO Max. I see those things not happening. But I think to what your point of might have been, they are still happening. There's revolutions happening. There's women being like treated like witches, especially in many African countries. And the building blocks of those are also starting to happen in places like our own communities that we live in, in America specifically. Yeah, it's not that far removed. Like you said, witch hunts still happen in certain countries today. It, Brittany's situation looks different, right? She got to be in a mansion and have certain things that she asked for, although not everything, but it was still a prison. You know, back in the day, women who were diagnosed with hysteria, that was reason enough to put them into an asylum, to remove them from their children, from their families, and basically lock them up. And the only way that they get out is by a man, a male doctor, saying that they were well enough to go. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in terms of like, how does misdiagnosis affect women or really anybody? A lot of these things that we're seeing in, in Brittany, but in other folks, like what we're calling erratic behavior is, is actually a trauma response. So her using that umbrella to attack a paparazzi. Well, to me, I see that as her being in the fight response, which is a natural Uh, part of the nervous system, when we're feeling threatened, our nervous system is designed to go into fight, to go into flight or to freeze. And so that's what it seems like what was happening. But if we're just looking at the, the surface level behavior that we can see, then we're not really getting to the root of it, Mm -hmm. right? If we're just treating the symptoms, then it's kind of like a band-aid. We need to get to the root of it. And the root of so many diagnoses of mental illness is actually trauma. So to not have that understanding really prevents a lot of people from getting the support that could really change their lives. I mean, I want to continue on that point you were just kind of talking about, but I also want to do a little tangent on kind of a conversation I previously had with Mika from uh, Safest Drug. And we talked about how, you know, clinical studies, you know, 30 plus years ago, didn't even want women in their studies because of proposed varying hormonal states and cycles and potential for childbirth, because men were considered easier and cheaper, you know, even being mentioned as being more homogenous. And then the US Congress passed the NIH Reviolation Act in 1993, which required fairly funded phase three research to include women and to include enough to analyze results by gender. But literally 30 years ago, studies were like, for drugs that people are still taking, we're like, we don't want women because they're too complicated. And so that brings a big aspect of women being like, well, all right, so we have this data that doesn't go as far back on many drugs that still use that same data. Yeah, it's harmful. But also, I want to continue off of your point and kind of get to this overarching idea of fame and dealing with trauma within fame and how do we talk about trauma and how do we be respectful of it at the same time? You know, I think Britney Spears has been this figure that we've seen the ups and downs of her career very publicly. And the fact that she has done this and had to deal with this the way she has is very traumatic. So within the context of that, you know, as a society, kind of a two-part question here, you know, just in your opinion, should we be allowing for people to get as famous as some have? You know, I think of the story of Michael Jackson having to rent out literally a mall just so he could shop in peace and feel like a normal human being. And then those people that are on this grand stage that literally everyone knows who they are, 
that have to deal with trauma, how do we talk about that? And how do we be respectful when we talk about that? Because even going into the store, I'm like, all right, I want to be respectful as possible to Britney Spears and what she's going through. But I also want to be able to talk about this in a manner that is talking about how we can be better at talking about it. Yeah. I mean, as far as the question, should we be allowing people to get this famous? I think that the ship has sailed on that one. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> it's that a little we too could, late on that, huh? Um, rain that one in, right? I mean, and that that goes back to even like royalty, peasants being um, fascinated by the royal families. And I think in order to not have this level of fame, we would have to restructure all of society. I think part of the appeal of celebrity is that it is a distraction from life that can feel unfulfilling or disappointing or really stressful. I mean, the average American has a lot of debt, has, you know, medical bills are so expensive. Our inflation's rising right now as we're having this podcast. Like life is stressful and to focus on celebrity can be a distraction. It can be a fantasy like, oh, there's somebody living in this luxury and with this, you know, wealth that is really appealing. So I think that that's part of the appeal. Who's creating art as we kind of talked about earlier, you know, creating art and society and creating art and entertainment. Yeah, it's very aspirational. But you're right. To be that famous invites in a really intense situation that can lead to trauma. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for Brittany. She was so young when she came into fame and to have like these swarms of people around her, people chasing her, you know, closing in on her. Like you said with Michael Jackson, like never having time or space to yourself. That's got to be so difficult. Um, and I really, and we see that with with folks who have become famous, who have shared how challenging that is and how many celebrities do struggle with substance use or even suicide. It does create a negative impact to have that many eyes on you, I think. Mm -hmm. As far as how we can talk about this, I think it's important that we believe people. I think it's important that we let people share their stories and that we believe trauma survivors. That's the most respectful thing is to listen, to not tell them how they should feel, um, to be open to what they have to say and, and share. And as far as what is a safe way to talk about your own trauma, it's important to only do that in safe places with people that you feel like you can trust. So for the average person, I wouldn't recommend sharing your trauma on social media. You know, for a celebrity, it's kind of hard. Everybody's looking at their stuff, right? I really feel for them. But ideally, we we can share about these things in places that will feel protected, where our vulnerability is protected. Um, and it's important to share st our stories of trauma. It's at least to another human, because as I said, we heal in relationship. A lot of trauma is relational based. If the trauma happens in relationship, the healing is going to happen in relationship. And we want to vet those people that we're going to, you know, have that relationship with where we're sharing our trauma. And so that can look like sharing it in therapy. And, and even that, it's amazing to me. I've had clients that don't share their trauma with me for many sessions. And when they do, sometimes they'll say, I've never shared this with any other person ever, even if they've been in therapy before. There's no pressure to share, right? You want to feel safe and comfortable, but eventually it, there's value in telling our stories and, and having those stories heard. Yeah. Kind of hearkening back to what you said a while ago, you know, this idea of sharing and understanding. Yeah. And and we're doing that now in how we're we're talking about Brittany, right? We're really validating what she's shared of her experience. We're not saying that it's not true. We're not arguing against it. And we're letting her lead. We're not saying what should happen or what she should be feeling or thinking. And I think that's important when we're we're talking about trauma. Ultimately, believe the person, listen to them, respect them. The importance of giving space and allowing them to share when they feel comfortable sharing. And even I think we, we kind of poached the topic in our pre-emails of this idea of trauma dumping and not understanding when you do share 
the audience that you're sharing to is also, I believe, is important as well. Do you see it kind of that way? In terms of like how sometimes our share can trigger other people? Yeah, and how we share our traumas with others, obviously more personal shares than say a celebrity like, you know, Britney Spears would. You know, a great tool that I've used in my own relationships and that uh, my friends use, we do this together, is asking the other person, do you have space to listen to me right now? Because I have some heavy stuff that I want to share. And asking for consent. And sometimes the other person will say, yeah, I have that space. And sometimes they'll say, you know what, I don't right now. But can we circle back later when I have a little bit more bandwidth? Um, That respects both people. I like that. Do you have space? I like that. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Katya, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of these strange the most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to support and connect with Katya, maybe you want to hear more and understand her deeper mission to end generational transmission of pain on this planet, you can do so by following her on Instagram at Katya Lovejoy. Once again, on Instagram at Katya Lovejoy. Or as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So Katya, as someone who has fully stepped both into the science side of medicine, you have a degree in neuroscience and the holistic side of medicine, how do you personally see those sides intermingle? I, we, we are complex beings. You know, we have a physical body uh, that, that we have a brain, we have biology, neurology. We also have energy. We also have a spirit. We can't think of ourselves as just these separate parts. I found in my own healing journey from healing my own trauma and in the folks that I work with that looking at ourselves and our life from a holistic perspective invites in this sense of wholeness because often trauma makes us feel broken or like a part is missing or something's been taken from us. So when we can really connect with all of the different parts of ourselves, yes, our physicality, which, you know, often that's the realm of science, you know, what are the hormones? What are the chemicals? That's important. But also like, what does my heart want? What is my, how does my spirit feel? How's the energy in my body? These are all parts of our being. And when we can bring all of the parts of us back, into our awareness, we can feel more whole. And that I think is what healing is. I like that. I've been, you know, my goal for the season is to talk less and listen more. So I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Katya, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and, well, just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Katya, we're now to my favorite part of the show where I hand off the show to my guests to close out the show however they see fit. You know, whatever you think needs to be said to kind of wrap up this show in a perfect bow, no pressure whatsoever. Katya, the floor is yours. Thank you. And thank you so much for this platform to share about what I think is one of the most important topics because everybody has trauma. And I do believe that if we all did our trauma work, we could eliminate at least relational trauma within two to three generations. And as I mentioned previously in the interview, this all lives in our body. So I'd love to end our session by just inviting everybody who's listening to get into your body. So if you're driving, you know, just keep your eyes on the road. <laughs> if you're at home and you're able to relax, then I want to invite you to just lean back into your chair or into your bed, wherever you are. And we'll start with that orienting practice that I talked about earlier in the podcast. So I want you to just look around your room. And even though you may have been in this space a thousand times before, just noticing where everything is, where the window and the door is, becoming aware of any sounds that you hear, breathing in through the nose, noticing any smells. You might feel inspired to close your eyes down. Maybe you take your hands onto your thighs perhaps even rubbing the thighs from hips to knees. This is a really grounding action. Just noticing the texture of your clothing, any temperature. And then finding stillness here. Let the shoulders drop down from the ears. 
release through the jaw. Relax the tiny muscles around the eyes, smoothing out the forehead. And then let's take a nice deep breath in here, filling up the belly, the ribs, and the chest. And as you exhale, purse your lips and blow out as if you're blowing through a straw. We're going to take another deep breath in. You want to imagine like you're filling a vessel of water. So first your belly expands, then your ribs, then your chest. And exhaling, blowing through your lips and feel that nice long exhale. Perhaps you notice your energy is already shifting, already starting to relax. Letting your breath find whatever rhythm feels natural and nourishing to you. And just again, noticing your seat, feeling where you make contact with that support, becoming aware of your legs, your feet. If your feet are on the ground, maybe just noticing that connection. And becoming aware of the earth beneath you, the great mother. Mother Earth, who's here to hold us, to nurture us. Feeling that gentle hug of gravity from the Earth, like an embrace. Helping to ground you, giving you that sense of support and security. And just take a moment to remind yourself here, I am safe. I am supported. I am calm, I am powerful, and I get to choose my experience. Take a nice deep breath in, exhale, and then just coming back into your room in your own timing. I want to thank you so much for going on that mini journey with me. If you like things like that, I've got a bunch of meditations and hypnosis recordings and different kinds of courses for your own healing. So yeah, you can find me on Instagram or on my website. And again, thank you so much for having me. And um, it was an honor to even just be able to guide that little relaxation and such an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it, Katya. Thank you very much for being on the show. And hopefully we'll have, you know, many more amazing conversations to come in the future. I hope so. That'd be great. All right, listeners, when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>